After a slow liftoff, the O'Hare terminal revamp is behind budget and years behind schedule. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news from the local housing market, including how Richard Kimball's apartment from 1993's film The Fugitive is for sale, and news of a rare late summer surge in Chicago home prices. Maybe this turns out to be a blip, or maybe we just don't get an August doldrums. Maybe these numbers continue for the next few weeks. We generally expect, and an agent mentioned this in the story, right after Labor Day, things start to pick up in so many ways, not just in the real estate market, but everywhere, but they have already picked up. So is that a foreshadowing of some super strength in September? I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, August 17th. Want some wins? Wintrust Community Banks is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in personal banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. That's one win, and that's for the second year in a row. That's a win-win. And you can now earn even more interest with Wintrust's new savings rates. That's a win-win-win. To get your savings some wins, visit Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. That's Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2020. Award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. Amy, how are you? I'm well, thanks. As ever, many things to get into. So generally, August, not a lot is happening in the real estate world. Kind of unremarkable, I think, was the word that you used in your reporting. But it has seen the strongest increase in selling prices of Chicago area homes since before interest rates impacted the market in mid-2022. Tell me about this. Yeah. And I thought this was worthy of note because um, there's data that comes out every Monday at noon. And I look and it has generally, it's from MRED, Midwest Real Estate Data, And it has generally remained sort of unchanged. Uh, Back a year plus ago, I was watching for steep drops because we thought the market was going to take a steep drop. Recently, I've been I've mentioned to you many times that it just sort of has stayed flat. Our home prices have been above what they were each week. They've been above what they were the corresponding time a year before. Nothing major, sometimes flat with a year before up about 4%. Um, It has been noteworthy because they haven't been falling as they are in some parts of the country. But all of a sudden, August, first two uh, weekly reports for August, one on Monday the 14th, one on Monday the 7th, when, as it happens, I was out of the office. Suddenly, um, home prices were up. The the median price of homes sold was up more than 8% each of those weeks. That first week, August 7th, Uh, The week ended August 7th, prices were up 8.4% from a year ago. The second week up 8.9%. So after 55 weeks of generally being flat up in the 4% range and then starting to sort of tilt upward toward 8%, suddenly they cross this 8% line. Um, So why are all those numbers important? I think it's worthy of note because, first of all, uh, we have seen this resilience over the course of the year. And I think this, what we're seeing now is sort of um, confidence that is built from that resilience. I think buyers have been out in the market quite a bit, as we know. Um, There's very little inventory on the market because a lot of people have a sub 4% and in many cases a sub 3% 
interest rate on their mortgage. So they don't want to put the house on the market and have to trade up to over 6%. Um, and yet there are people buying. So uh, I think a lot of people who sat it out for a while started saying, well, heck, I guess I've gotten used to these rising interest rates. I'm just going to have to buy at this rate. What one agent in this story told me is people who were watching interest rates finally said, it is what it is. I have to buy at this rate after all. Home prices were rising uh, and now I've got to buy two things are going up, both home prices and interest rates. Uh, and so the fact that suddenly prices have popped like this is is a sign that one, maybe we already reached whatever bottom we were going to reach. And it was really just sort of a skate across the surface as a bottom. Um, but maybe confidence is back. And one agent said to me that it's not just confidence in the kind of resilience I've just been talking about in our local market. The fact that while other markets were sagging, we were just skating along the surface, but it may also come from uh, confidence in the national economy. There's a lot less talk of going into a recession. There've been good job growth numbers. There have been good manufacturing numbers. It appears that the economy is in a better place than it was, for example, a year ago when we thought, oh my gosh, a recession is right about to crash over us. Um, and so it looks as if people have been more confident. Given that, what might we expect to see in the, the remaining weeks of August and looking at that data? Well, it's going to be really interesting to see because, first of all, we should keep in mind that uh, these numbers, these are closed prices. So these are purchase decisions. Closings are in August. The purchase decisions were made in June, July. Uh, and then I actually closed my deal in one of those first two weeks of August. So we'll see, you know, has confidence continued to build in the later weeks? Maybe this turns out to be a blip, or maybe we just don't get an August doldrums. Maybe these numbers continue for the next few weeks. We generally expect, and an agent mentioned this in the story, right after Labor Day, things start to pick up in so many ways, not just in the real estate market, but everywhere, but they have already picked up. So is that a foreshadowing of some super strength in September? All that we have to wait to see. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see with so many things. I feel like that's on the bingo card of this show is we always say, well, we're just going to have to wait and see. Well, it is in part because nobody expected the market we have right now. When interest rates started to rise really fast in 2022, as the Fed was trying to sort of choke off inflation, housing prices being one of the biggest pieces of inflation, people really thought the housing market was going to subside quite a bit, and it hasn't. Uh, so it, it's defying expectations left and right. And that's one of the reasons we have to wait and see. It's not possible to say, oh, when X plus Y happens, you always get Z because that's not where we are this year. Yeah, we don't know. Lots of things are up in the air. All right. So talk to me about uh, a building in Bronzeville and, and what you make of kind of this really fast lease up of this building. Yeah, this is a building called 43 Green. It's on 43rd Street next to the CTA Green Line Station. It's, it is it is completed. It's one of three planned buildings for that strip of 43rd Street, a mix of affordable rentals and market rate rentals. Uh, the market rate rentals went very quickly. There are 99 units in the building, 49 are market rate units. They all went in the course of a few weeks. And overall, for both types of housing, there were six times as many applicants as there were units available. 
Wow. Yeah. And a few of the reasons that's important. One, um, this is, I've talked a lot about the super high-end homes going into Bronzeville, the million-dollar homes. and We were counting the number of half-million-dollar homes. And that's one piece of the revitalization of Bronzeville. But every time I write about that, people say, well, aren't people at lower parts of the income spectrum being forced out? Well, here are buildings where people at lower parts of the income spectrum are be, are the target and are filling it up. But also, it's just this idea that new construction, nice apartments, I walked through them in Bronzeville, attracting such a crowd, suggests that there really is legs on this Bronzeville boom. Not that, I mean, at this point, having covered it for so many years, I don't have any doubt. But I think people who wonder what's going on down there could see that a building like this rented up really fast. Another reason it's important um, is one of the developers talked to me about the idea that his own great-grandmother was somebody who arrived here in Chicago uh, on in the Great Migration, lived right nearby, 43rd Street, especially right there where the Green Line is, was was really a magnet for, people, for Black people coming up from the South. A lot of people lived there, were entertained there, dined there, shopped there. And then in the 20th century, much of that went away. We had segregation, we had redlining, we had a, a, a disinvestment that really sort of changed a neighborhood like that for the worse. And now here's a guy who, again, whose great-grandmother settled there, who's back bringing in this infusion of new housing for people, for, for today's equivalent of, the, of those people, which I think is kind of cool. Definitely. What, what, like That's got to be such an interesting kind of full circle feeling for him. Yeah. You know, to hear him say it, um, it's touching to hear sure. him say something like that because you realize... First of all, history does turn and turn and turn, and Chicago can change and get rid of some of these scars from its past. Bronzeville has some of our deepest scars from our past, from our um, racist, redlining, segregated past, and it's nice to see a lot of this sort of come back. That's one of the reasons I spend so much time covering Bronzeville is because this is a, a great form of recovery. And again, the, these, these buildings, there's only one built, another has broken ground, a third is planned. These buildings are not that luxury home category that I cover so often. This is affordable rentals where you have to qualify based on your income and market rate rentals, two bedrooms in the $1,900 range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. We'll have to keep talking about Bronzeville and everything going on there for sure. Let's go to Prairie Avenue and talk about mansions that uh, will be homes again for the first time since the 1920s. I was so happy to get this confirmation. So back in July, I reported and we talked about how the U.S. Soccer Federation, which had been in these two mansions on Prairie Avenue since the 90s, uh, moved up to Wacker Drive. Danny Ecker reported that they had moved up to a tower on Wacker Drive and we're putting these mansions on the market, these two mansions next door to each other with a parking lot in between at 18th and Prairie. When they went under contract in July, you and I talked about how the seller's agent said, yeah, I think these are going back to residential. Well, now the deal has closed. It closed on Friday for $3.9 million. And I got to the buyer's agent who wasn't willing to talk to me at the time that the uh, properties were under contract. And she confirmed that yes, these two buildings are going back to single family use. Now, before we go into why that's important, I will say it's two buildings. When you look at them on the street, they're not connected, but in the back, they are connected by their coach houses. 
So it's a U-shaped property with two big houses at the front and then this sort of row of coach house at the back. The reason uh, I, I bring that up is I also asked this agent, are they going to use that whole 19,000 square foot U-shape as one single family home? And she went back to the buyer and the answer that came to me is they're not sure. So it might be that it's two single family homes made of these two mansions, or it might be that it's one. Now, why is that important? These were both built in the 19th century in the heyday of Prairie Avenue as sort of the capital of um, society in Chicago. Marshall Field lived there. George Pullman lived there. Um, in one of these two houses, the Kimball family of the piano manufacturing company lived. Uh, this is late 19th century. And then early in the 20th century, things start to change. Factories are encroaching on Prairie Avenue. Um, a vice district headquartered around the Everly Club is sort of encroaching on Prairie Avenue. It becomes less fashionable. And many of these houses were demolished. Some turned into other uses like museums. In the case of these two, um, they were owned by publishing companies and schools and various uses from the 1920s until now. In one case from 1921 and in the other building's case from 1924, so a century more or less, they went out of private residential use and they've been all these other things, including since 1991, the headquarters of the U.S. Soccer Federation, and now going back to private residential, which I think is a nice, it's, it's speaking of the circle, the cycles in Chicago history, it's nice to see these buildings that were built to be single family residential going back to that use a century later. That's right. And it's such a storied area. I mean, that that little strip of Prairie Avenue is so beautiful. And so many of the houses have kind of cool stories behind them. Even the modern addition of, hey, you know, to live in a house and say, hey, this used to be the U.S. Soccer Federation. Those are kind of just all cool details for, for a homeowner. It was always, it, it was kind of amazing to walk past that unbelievably ornate house, the, the um, one on the northern one of this pair with so much carving on the exterior. It was based on a French castle and say, yeah, U.S. soccer is headquartered there. Like, <laughs> right. what? Right. And it's also right across the street from one of Chicago's greatest landmarks, um, Glessner House, which is such a fabulous place to take a tour of. And again, yeah, it's, I, I'm just really pleased to be able to tell people these are going to be residences again. Yeah, that'll be very, very cool. And it'll be interesting to see what, what uh, you know, what, if any, changes are made to them or things like that. This is me hoping, like preemptively hoping they call you back, they t that the buyers tell you everything that they plan to do with the house. I wish they would because these two houses, I mean, you know, once again, because they haven't been houses, uh, I haven't seen the interiors. There aren't a lot of pictures of the interiors, but I assume much of the historical stuff is gone. And the real estate agent with whom, by the way, I only communicated by text message, did say they want to bring back the charm of the interiors. So I hope that's a good sign. Right. So we'll see what that means. Well, speaking of historic houses, uh, we've got a couple more to talk about. One, uh, talk to me about this pre-Civil War house that is on the market after a rehab from a fire. Yeah, this is a really interesting house. This is on Canfield in Norwood Park. And in fact, when you stand across the street to take a picture of it, you're in Park Ridge. So the house is right at the very edge of the city. Right on the um, edge. I yeah. learned that, that I took my picture from Park Ridge. Anyway, um, Built in 1854, not the oldest house in Chicago, though there are two houses from the 1830s that are landmarks, but uh, this was, there are very few houses in Chicago from before the Civil War. Built in 1854, 
and kind of a survivor. In the in 1990, there was a developer, there was a family who had owned it for 35 years, um, but they hadn't been living in it for several years. It was vacant, it was run down, and they were trying to sell it to a developer. It's on this house is on a huge lot. It's on the equivalent of more than four city lots. And they were trying to sell it to a developer who was going to build two big new single family homes. And there was this sort of uprising. I didn't live in Chicago at the time, but I read all of the old articles from the uh, Chicago Tribune, which Blair Kamen wrote at the time. And there was a there was an uproar because this house, again, is one of very few houses from before the Civil War in Chicago. City landmarked it right away, like faster than fast. And then the house was not sold to that developer. So it survived that. Uh, it was rehabbed, it had a couple of owners. And then in 2021, there was a fire. The owner, apparently, I wasn't able to confirm this, but the reports are uh, it was a space heater, which is, you know, the cause of a lot of fires. Much of the, uh, the rear of the newest part of the house, newest, meaning the part that was built in the 1870s, that was very damaged and the house was livable, but not very. So it is sold to a rehabber and that rehabber realizes, oh man, this is more than I can do. So it was sold to another rehabber. They did a lot of work. They really did a nice job. They've just put it on the market this week asking $879,900 for it. And it's interesting because um, I spoke to the head rehabber on this project and you know the inside was pretty gone. So it's a pretty contemporary interior with an open plan. There's you don't go in and find old historical fireplaces and that sort of thing. But on the outside, they had to, they had to because it's a landmark, redo everything. So they had to recut a lot of the trim. They replaced a lot of the old cedar siding. It looks like a brand new house from 1854. Uh, and then inside, it looks like a brand new interior from 2023. And so what the rehabber is hoping is that somebody, he said, you know, somebody who's looking for new construction isn't likely to want this historical shell, but somebody who really values the historical shell would come along and say, oh yeah, and it's like new construction, so I have to live with the mold and creaking floorboards and all those things from living in a uh, in an older house. So tell me uh, what you know about the history of this house. Uh, it's called the John Wingert house. And as I think you know, I always, when a house has only a male's name, I always try to get the mm -hmm. female's name. Yes. I can't find his wife's name. This is really interesting. His obituary in 1906 lists John Wingert and his widow and then the names of all his kids. Oh. So unfortunately, this one is still going to be called the John Wingert house. I'm sure if I had dug deeper, I could find the, the wife's name. But for now, it's not the John and Sally Wingert house. It's the John Wingert house. His family comes, they leave Germany in 1839. They get to Chicago in 1842. Uh, his father actually bought a lot of acreage in that whole area, Park Ridge. And the oldest part of this house was built in 1854. And when you look at the picture, I, I said so in the captions, on the far left or the north end of the house, you can see there's a little sort of, it looks like a one-room schoolhouse. It's like a little one-room house that they would have built in 1854. And then they expanded going south. And by the early 1870s, they put up sort of a standard two-story Italianate house, but it's all connected. So, you know, it counts as an 1854 house because it's got this one end from that date. And so they owned it until at least 1906. 
And then the record kind of goes cold and it shows up again in 1990 when, as I said, Blair Kamen is writing in the Tribune, wait a minute, somebody wants to tear down a pre-Civil War house. Let's not do that. Not that he stated that opinion. He was you know, channeling the opinions of the people who were trying to keep it from being demolished. Well, we'll have to see, you know, maybe you'll, maybe this time next week, you'll be reporting that it, that it sold quickly, perhaps. But speaking of historic homes, that's kind of a theme today. Yeah, it is. There's an 1890s log cabin that's in Glenview that could be reunited with a naturalist. Tell me what, huh? Yeah. There's this famous family that had an estate in Glenview beginning in the 19th century, the Kennecott's. And then sort of an offshoot or a piece of the family is the Petey's, Donald Culross Petey, the great naturalist and, and writer. One of the Kennecott's founded the Chicago Academy of Sciences, um, did a lot of exploration of uh, Canada and the Northwest, but they're based on the, oh, I'm sorry. And they also uh, were the first people to catalog the plants of Northern Illinois. What are the native plants of Northern Illinois? Based on this big property in Glenview that they called the Grove, later came to be called Kennecott's Grove. Over time, they sold off a lot of their acreage, including apparently the acreage that this log cabin is on. A member of the Kennecott family uh, built a log cabin in the 1890s on this site, and then eventually it is sold off. It's turned into a house. Somebody turned it into a year-round house. It's only really had two uh, extended ownerships in its entire life. It was owned by the Kennecott family until the 1960s. And then the buyer uh, was a family that included a member of the Frog and Fern Ladies. Who are the Frog and Fern Ladies? Well, they're heroes in Glenview. They're heroes of nature because, so the, the grove has sort of been parceled off and it's not really there anymore, or it's not really known anymore, but it's this place where important nature science happened. And in the 60s, there's a move to develop a big subdivision on, on the old property. And the frog and fern ladies, who were nature fans living in the sort of wooded surroundings, all got together and said, no, we can't let this happen. We have to save the grove. They were successful. It's now a national landmark. It's also a piece of the uh, Glenview Park District and very worth a visit for anybody who hasn't been. Um, nice trails and that sort of thing. One of the things that's been going on in the years since is the first piece of land they saved has been added to and added to by expansions over the years um, as the Grove or the, the support group that funds uh, these purchases for the Grove buys land and grows and grows. And now this property came on the market. And um, again, it had been owned for all these years by the family of one of the women who saved the Grove. She has died. Her children own it. And when I called the Grove to say, so is this one of your original buildings? They said, oh, yeah, and we want it back. So it looks like they're going to buy it. The, the problem is, you know, they're a nonprofit. They have to go through the process of do we have the money? Do you approve this purchase? Blah, 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 blah. And the seller may get another offer before that. So it, we don't know for sure that this log cabin from the 1890s will be restored to its proper place with the grove, but it, but they're trying to make it happen. The possibility exists. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yet again, another story we will have to revisit. Yeah. I hope I told that in a concise way. I feel like I got lost. <laughs> this is probably the wrong time to say it, but I got lost in the weeds or in the case of the grove, 
I got lost in the native plants that are all in the around. frogs and ferns in or the whatever. Frogs and ferns yeah. try to tell the story, but it's a it's a really interesting sort of a, um, history that you know. Another theme today seems to be the sort of turn and turn and turn. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. the grove. It was parceled off from the grove. It might come back. That's right. Who's going to sing to everything? Turn, turn, turn. I was about to, and then I was. I, I'm going to leave it to you. I think that's, somebody that's... from our parents' generation really has to sing that because it's. <laughs> Sure, sure. Of course. Um, so let's talk about a row house designed by Frank Lloyd Wright to keep that theme going. You know, uh, and this one, there might be more news on this one sometime soon because a lot of people found out about this last week and and got excited. So in the 1890s, Frank Lloyd Wright designed affordable housing, row houses at Francisco and Walnut in East Garfield Park for a developer named Waller. They were beautiful. When you see the old pictures, they're just a fascinating set of small homes, row homes, apartment homes. And over time, East Garfield Park sags, and many of them have been demolished. People who live in Oak Park might be aware that there's a piece of the old Francisco part of this development on the Francisco apartments in Oak Park. There's an arch that was salvaged. But on Walnut, there are two buildings. One has one unit. Another has five units of these row houses. And in between is a gap where something burned down. It had all been one building. One unit is missing. One unit in that five unit building is in terrible shape. I got to walk through and I I was actually worried that I would fall through the floor. This thing is in such bad shape. So again, built in the 1890s. In 2003, a trio of rehabbers bought this one and expected to fix it. Nothing has happened in 20 years. Uh, it's sitting there. Actually, what has happened is its condition has sort of worsened because they did a lot of gutting of, of material. They, they stripped it down to get started on the work. And so all the debris that they stripped is down on the floors. And I mean, it's bad. It's, I should have been walking through with a mask and um, a flashlight. Oh, don't tell our editor that I didn't have a mask and a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say... There's probably a liability happening here. <laughs> there's no, no, actually, it, it wasn't that bad. I should, I probably exaggerated right there, but I was having too much fun telling the story. Anyway, it's in really bad shape. It's in terrible shape. And one of the reasons it's terrible shape is a concern beyond the fact that this is a property designed by Frank Lloyd Wright that is in terrible condition right now. It's, as I said, it's a piece of a five unit building. So if this thing really continues to disintegrate, what happens to the ones it's attached to. And I did talk to the owner of one right next door who said, yeah, we're worried. You know, there are raccoons in there all the time. There are, uh, there aren't rats, she said, but there are um, raccoons and squirrels and possums and cats and everything else wandering through. It's uh, secured. So there aren't kids and drug deals and things like that going on, but they're concerned. Um, So we have a couple of reasons to be concerned. One is it's a Frank Lloyd Wright property and it's in terrible shape. And the other is the threat its instability might pose to the others in the building. So it's on the market at $75,000. That's less than they paid for it in 2003. They paid 88.5 for it in 2003. One of the things that's really interesting here is, again, this is a piece of a row, five units. The two units on its immediate left and its immediate right were rehab were owned and rehabbed by the group that's now called Landmarks Illinois. It had a longer name in the 1990s. In the 90s, Landmarks Illinois bought the other two, these other two units, rehabbed them, stabilized them, 
it's not clear why this one in the middle was not part of that deal. They also had the vacant lot where the one had burned down and some other property. So those two are stable. And as I said, I talked to the woman in one of them and, and she's worried. So one of the questions is, does a group like Landmarks come in and say, we can do for this middle one what we did for those other two? Um, and I understand that there are discussions, not necessarily with Landmarks Illinois, but preservationists and others are trying to figure out, can we get a hold of this because we want to stabilize it? Wow. And then any sense of what it might cost to stabilize it? Uh, a lot. A lot, right. The, the thing about it is it's got this beautiful look on the exterior, these beautiful sort of prairie pillars going up the side, uh, the, the front, and then this wonderful string of pearls of terracotta that runs all the way across the roof line of the five units, really pretty on the outside. The inside honestly makes you gasp when you look at it. I mean, there's, there's really nothing there. There's a little bit of tile in the bathroom and everything else is just yeah debris. So it, it would be a big project. There are some other issues. One small issue or not so small issue is uh, some of the lots immediately behind are owned by somebody else. So you actually kind of can't have a back door. You can't have rear egress and we need two, two means of egress for any property. So you've got to resolve that. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a lot to be done and nobody knows what it will cost. You need something like, again, I'm not trying to recruit Landmarks Illinois, but you need a group along those lines to say, we'll do it. Right, right. Or a, or a very uh, well-funded Frank Lloyd Wright enthusiast to say, I got this, everybody step aside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you're out there, give us a call. Yeah, right, right. Get on that, will you? Yeah, we want that story. Yeah, we would love to talk about that in the next podcast. All right. It's been a minute since we talked about movie sets and, and where that intersects with your beat. But uh, talk to me about a South Chicago two flat that was used for scenes in the 1993 Harrison Ford movie, The Fugitive, and how it is for sale. Yeah, it's for sale at the 30th anniversary of the movie being released. That's cool. They did say in the listing that The Fugitive was was partially filmed there, but they didn't say, and it's the anniversary. So thank you for giving me that real estate agent. But sure. It's at 90th in Houston. It's sort of an illegal three flat in the movie because it has a basement apartment that Harrison Ford rents. For people who don't remember, Harrison Ford plays Richard Kimball, a Chicago physician who is unjustly convicted of killing his wife. He escapes from a, a prison transport to try and find the one-armed man he believes actually killed his wife. And he's on the run uh, being pursued by Tommy Lee Jones and other members of law enforcement. So um, his home was up on Wisconsin Street in Old Town. There are a lot of great scenes at the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I mean, it's a real Chicago movie, in part because it was it was uh, directed and produced by a Chicagoan, Andy Davis. And at one point, Harrison Ford, the, the physician, rents a basement apartment, a cruddy basement apartment from this Polish woman and her son. This is that cruddy basement apartment. <laughs> it's an old two flat, as I said, at 90th and Houston. It's on the market at $150,000 by the owner who owned it at the time the movie was shot there. Okay. Price is lower than a lot of two flats in the neighborhood. I checked. Generally, they go for about 239000 in that neighborhood because the second floor apartment has been nicely rehabbed. The first floor apartment has not and looks pretty bad. And then there's not really a basement apartment there was in the movie. So they actually filmed inside and outside. You see Harrison Ford kind of flee the apartment and jump over a chain link fence and 
this is there. And then shortly after that, he ends up in what we know as City Hall and the county building, but it's supposed to be the jail and then the St. Patrick's Day Parade. So it's kind of a pivotal scene and filmed there at 90th in Houston. Again, another house with a cool story attached to it, which is always like a fun little detail on uh, on properties. Yeah. And we never seem to run out of those. That's one of the things about this beat. There's all, Chicago's big enough. Yeah. There's always another one. That's exactly right. Well, so that was the that was the 90s. Let's go back to the 80s and talk about a house in Olympia Fields with some 80s vibe going on there. I got such a <laughs> kick out of this one. I wanted to pull out my old willy wear suit, my old unreconstructed <laughs> suit and my neon colored socks to go get a tour of this house. But I didn't. So it's in Olympia Fields. It was built in 1987. One of the amazing things, I think, is that when you look at sort of the foyer, living room, dining room, kitchen, it's this huge expanse of shiny stone floors. I mean, you can just imagine Bette Midler and Ruthless People in super high heels going clack, 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 clack across those floors. That is exactly the movie I was thinking of when I saw that, yeah, isn't when it? I saw that photo. And then there are these glass handrails. The staircase has these glass handrails lined with black. Um, there's, there's so much, you, you kind of have to do this house in like leopard print and neon. Oh yeah. The house is mostly neutralized for the listings, but I'll bet that this seller had neon and, and animal prints and things like that. What's interesting is he's not the first owner of the house. It was built in 1987. He bought it in the 21st century and he's kept the whole eighties vibe going. I couldn't reach him and his real estate agent didn't call me back. So I don't know, but I'm guessing, you know, a fan of Ruthless People, Brat Pack movies, Miami Vice. Am I dating myself? <laughs> uh, and this one's on the market at $1.15 million. All right. Well, everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and you can see photos of this house and all the others. And absolutely, you will imagine Bette Midler and Ruthless People running through the, the foyer of that house because... You can't not. You can't not. I think it's true. Yeah. I wish. Don't you have a Bette Midler impersonation you can do? Uh, let me work on that and I'll get back to you next week. Okay. Great. <laughs> Other than like singing Wind Beneath My Wings, not really, but I will work on one. All right. Tell me what's coming up in the week ahead. Well, actually, another musical reference for anybody who knows the John Prine song, Paradise, where a child says, Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County down by the Green River where Paradise lay? John Prine then sings, I'm sorry, my son, but it's too late for asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. I'm going to Mr. Peabody's house. <laughs> okay, this yeah. I am here for. We'll have a story on that house, on the, the coal baron, uh, Mr. Peabody's house. Fascinating. All right. Well, I will meet you back here this time next week, and we will talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Laura Ricketts is leading a group buying the Chicago Red Stars. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Do you know a leader, a visionary, an influencer, an innovator? Do you know a Titan? Join the ranks of Chicago's Titan 100, a new exclusive community for C-suite executives. Stand up and be recognized and tap into the power of a growing national network. Learn more, nominate someone, or apply today at whipfleet.com slash Chicago Titan. That's WIPFLI.com slash Chicago Titan. 
This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. In February of 2018, then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel unveiled an ambitious plan for the $8.5 billion expansion and modernization of Chicago's O'Hare International Airport. The project aimed to enhance the city's global air travel status and be completed by 2026. However, as Crane's John Pletz and Greg Hines have both reported, the plan has faced numerous challenges over the past five and a half years. Primarily, the COVID-19 pandemic, inflation, and administrative upheaval have disrupted progress. O'Hare's recovery from the pandemic has been slow, and clashes between the city and airlines over escalating costs have further complicated matters. The first of three new terminals promised under the plan is set to commence construction only in the later half of 2024, pushing the completion date to 2032. As Pletz and Hines also reported, the city and airlines, responsible for funding the project through landing fees and rent, remain in talks to determine the project's scope, cost, and timeline. But despite industry concerns and delays, Aviation Commissioner Jamie Ree is optimistic, highlighting the essential groundwork underway, such as stormwater drainage systems and an underground road for service vehicles. However, cost pressures continue to mount putting in question the realization of the centerpiece within the allocated budget, and that is the new global terminal designed by architect Jeannie Gang. The current design stands at about 30% completion, and Chicago's slower airport recovery, compared to others, has also affected the project's pace. Heinz and Pletz also reported that while initial plans projected an $8.5 billion cost, the latest estimate stands at $12.1 billion, reflecting additional work and inflation. Despite challenges, Re maintains her commitment to delivering the expansion as planned, acknowledging the airline's budgetary constraints. However, the slower expansion has also raised concerns about O'Hare's competitiveness among major airports. Although airlines like United and American have pledged support, cost control efforts could impact the design envisioned by Gang. But as construction continues, the spotlight remains on Mayor Brandon Johnson's commitment to the project, as other major airports across the U.S., including New York's JFK and Los Angeles International, are progressing with their own multi-billion dollar terminal enhancements. Heinz and Pletz reported that Ree remains determined to secure O'Hare's future as an aviation hub, offering assurance that the expansion will be completed on schedule and within budget by the new date of 2032. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that former Sterling Bay principal Scott Goodman has acquired a high-profile property near Lincoln Yards from his old firm, a deal that comes as Sterling Bay tries to jumpstart the sprawling $6 billion Northside megaproject. Ecker reported that a joint venture of Goodman's Farpoint Development and real estate investor Langdon Partners earlier this month bought the 122,000-square-foot industrial property at 1854 North Besley Court. That according to people familiar with the deal who spoke with Cranes. The joint venture purchased the property from a Sterling Bay entity that originally acquired the building in 2014. The row of connected brick buildings is the first property that Sterling Bay has sold to Goodman, who co-founded Sterling Bay in 1987. Goodman left the firm in 2016 to launch Farpoint, while his former partner, Sterling Bay CEO Andy Glore, was assembling properties along the north branch of the Chicago River for Lincoln Yards, a 53-acre mixed-use campus the developer has planned between Lincoln Park and Bucktown. 
Ecker noted in reporting that the two development firms have had little public interaction since then, but acquiring the Bessley property puts Goodman squarely back in Sterling Bay's line of sight. The site is one block from the western edge of the property, where Sterling Bay envisions high-rise apartments and other big Lincoln Yards developments. And now, as Ecker points out, control of the Bessley property is in the hands of Farpoint, a far smaller developer but one that is emerging as a power player in local commercial real estate with a series of high-profile projects, some of which are in competition with Sterling Bay. Ecker further noted that the sale also comes as Sterling Bay tries to weather a financial storm at Lincoln Yards. The developer is trying to find a new capital partner to finance the property as its two primary backers lost patience with the development's lack of progress and seek to cash out at substantial discounts. It's unclear how much Goodman's venture paid for the Besley property, and the transaction has not yet been recorded in Cook County property records. But as Ecker pointed out, Farpoint's purchase comes as it closes in on another high-profile real estate deal along the Mag Mile. A joint venture between the developer and Northfield-based Saxony Capital is under contract to pay just more than $40 million for the empty, more than 117,000-square-foot building at 830 North Michigan Avenue. Crane's Steve Daniels reported that State Farm appears to face paying hundreds of millions of dollars to cover claims by property owners whose homes were destroyed or damaged in the recent deadly Maui wildfire. The Bloomington-based insurance giant has far and away the largest market share in Hawaii for homeowners insurance. Daniels reported that in 2021, the most recent data available, State Farm had 36% of residential property premiums in Hawaii, according to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Northbrook-based Allstate, the second-largest homeowners insurer in the U.S. after State Farm, is the fourth-largest in Hawaii, with a share of just 7%. Moody's Investor Service estimated on August 14th that the Maui wildfires would cost insurers collectively at least $1 billion. State Farm doesn't do much commercial property insurance in Hawaii, and commercial property does make up a portion of that $1 billion total. But most of the substantial price tag is tied to the high average home value of $1.5 million in the Maui community most affected by the fires. The cost to cover policyholders could reach $300 million for State Farm based on its market share. To put those figures in perspective, all insurers in Hawaii collected just $632 million in homeowners and commercial property premiums in 2021, also according to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Daniels noted that with a net worth of $131 billion at the end of 2022, State Farm can absorb the Hawaii costs. But the state's highly unusual fire damages add to a pile of property claims that are well up from last year for the industry across the country. A higher-than-normal number of high-intensity weather events occur in a large number of states. State Farm has privately held and discloses its financial results once a year. Daniels pointed out that, as an example of that, publicly traded Allstate absorbed $3.6 billion in homeowners insurance losses due to weather-related catastrophes in the first half of the year, up 177 percent from $1.3 billion during the same time frame last year. And according to Moody's, exacerbating the costs tied to Maui's recovery are issues specific to the remote Hawaiian islands, such as higher construction costs given that building materials need to be brought to the islands. 
The rating agency's report also said, quote, but construction materials and labor costs increased significantly during the pandemic, and the increase is driving higher property replacement costs, which feeds through to higher homeowners and commercial property claims. The report continued, quote, Maui may need construction workers from other Hawaiian islands or from the U.S. mainland, and construction workers may face their own housing shortages. Also saying, quote, the increase in demand for construction labor and materials following the wildfires is likely to lead to higher insured losses. Daniels also reported that another factor is the high cost of providing shelter for residents whose homes are destroyed or uninhabitable while the buildings are being rebuilt. He also noted that unknown is whether State Farm passed off any of its Hawaii exposure to reinsurers or companies that provide coverage to direct insurers for a price. If so, that would potentially reduce the cost to State Farm. Find more reporting on this topic and many others at chicagobusiness.com. Danny Ecker reported that Chicago Cubs co-owner Laura Ricketts is leading a group of women from the Chicago business and civic community to buy the Chicago Red Stars for $35.5 million. The Ricketts-led group announced it has an agreement in principle to acquire the club and aims to close on the purchase this month. Terms of the deal were not disclosed, but a source familiar with the agreement confirmed to Cranes the price tag and said it represents the valuation of the franchise, while the new owners also plan to invest an additional $25 million into the club's soccer and business operations. Ecker noted that the deal comes 10 months after current majority owner Armin Whistler relinquished control of the franchise following a federal investigation and report that found he repeatedly dismissed allegations of emotional and verbal player abuse against former head coach Rory Dames. Whistler, who founded the team in 2007, apologized for his role and hired a firm in December to put the franchise up for sale. Now Laura Ricketts, who is a minority investor in the WNBA's Chicago Sky Team in addition to her Cubs stake, is expanding her investment in professional sports. Also included in the Ricketts-led group is Ventus CEO Deb Cafaro, who is also a minority owner of the NHL's Pittsburgh Penguins, Tawani Enterprises President and CEO Jennifer Pritzker, Loop Capital Partner Sidney Dillard, and Impact Engine Partner and CEO Jessica Drost-Yagan, that according to a statement from the buyers. Ecker further reported that in addition to Whistler, a slew of minority owners in the Red Stars franchise are also expected to cash out as part of the sale, according to the source who spoke with Cranes. Whistler, who helped create the NWSL in 2012, brought on investors in the club in 2021, including former Chicago Bears defensive end Israel Adonage, ESPN commentator Sarah Spain, Chicago Blackhawks player development coach Kendall Coyne Schofield, as well as former 1871 CEO and prominent Chicago veteran venture capitalist Kevin Willer. Ecker further noted in reporting that the Ricketts family has a history of trying to dive into professional soccer ownership. A venture led by the family came up short last year in a well-publicized effort to acquire Chelsea Football Club after billionaire Roman Abramovich put the club up for sale in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Ricketts also tried to buy Italian soccer club AC Milan in 2018. In Chicago, Cubs chairman Tom Ricketts teamed up with Chicago developer Sterling Bay in 2018 to try to launch a new United United Soccer League franchise at a 20,000-seat stadium Sterling Bay aimed to build at Mega Project Lincoln Yards. The plan was ultimately scrapped amid public pushback to the prospect of a stadium-anchored project. The Red Stars, who play their games at SeatGeek Stadium in suburban Bridgeview, rank 11th in the 12-team NWSL through 15 matches this season.
That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.